Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. There's a ping pong table to my left, a foosball table. This is the game room right here. <laughs> this is our game room. Yeah, we're in the we got a little game room. Only cats who have game are allowed in this room. That's true. And you got That's it. That's why I invited you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madcap. I'm Daniel Bloom. And I'm David Ross. Today, we pick the brain of a man of print journalism. His name is Chris Richards, and he is the pop music critic for one of our favorite Washington institutions, The Washington Post. Richards reviews artists of all kinds. You can find him at a Juicy J concert just as easily as you can see him at a Paul McCartney or Rolling Stones show, always with a notepad in hand, ready to violate it with his ink. Richards is a bon vivant, trained as a painter and an accomplished musician, having been in the bands Q and Not You and Paint Branch. His Hemingway and prose can be read in his weekly column, which comes out every Tuesday in the style section of the Washington Post. This interview was conducted in the game room. Let us now explore his world. Your fault on the story, now don't fuck it up. Where'd you grow up? Where did I grow up? I was born here in Washington, D.C., and my family moved around a little bit um, in my first five years of life. By the time it was time for me to go to school, they settled in a town called Arnold, Maryland, which is essentially Annapolis, like right across the bridge from Annapolis. Um, and that's where I grew up, went to high school, and then I came back to D.C. to go to college in the fall of 97. I went to uh, George Washington University and pretty much been here the entire time. I left for New York for about two years. What were you doing in New York? New York, um, I had gotten a job as the editor of the Fader magazine, which lasted a very short while. It was kind of a crash and burn experience up there. So I was doing that for about six months and then freelancing for the rest of the time that I was living there. And then I got this gig here in D.C. You can't say crash and burn without having to expound a little bit on crash and burn. Um, I was hired. What does that black box say? (laughs) It's just me weeping in (laughs) in Brooklyn every night. what happened was basically I went up there for a job interview not knowing what position I was being interviewed for um, and the interview went really well because I was very energized about the magazine it was my favorite magazine at the time I absolutely adored it and learned so much from it and had freelance for them as well um, and the interview went really really well and the publisher said well how would you feel running the magazine and when you're confronted with that question at age 27 how would you like to run your favorite music magazine you say and I say hell yeah hell yeah hell yeah so I said yes without really thinking through um, what exactly that would mean. And I had been, I'm like a very can-do kind of guy. So everyone came back from Christmas break and they found out they had a new boss. And their new boss had never lived in New York. He had never been an editor. He had never been a manager. He had never worked at a magazine. Um, so the vibe was just a little tense from go and it just didn't work out. That night, how'd you feel when you left the office realizing that you had accepted to be the editor of Fader. Yeah, I feel like I'm the fucking editor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I was scared and overwhelmed and happy. I mean, it was affirmation. Mm-hmm. I was used to, affirmation. We could talk a lot about affirmation. Yeah. I had gone through my whole 20s being in a punk rock band, and affirmation came to me in the form of the success of the band. And I never really thought about this until after the Fader and after I came back to DC and all these things. But like for all of my 20s, almost all my 20s, I could drive to just about any town in America and there would be a crowd there, even if it was small, even if it was five people, a crowd there who wanted to hear what I have to say. And people don't go through their early adult life feeling that. And for me, it was just normal. So 
and it felt good. You know what I mean? So actually to kind of get back to your question, walking out of the magazine, it felt good, but also natural. Cause I was used to getting things my way. Like I've been really lucky and really fortunate that things go my way. And then that was the first episode of my life. The magazine episode was the first time where I'd ever really been handed like a, Oh, you, you messed up, dude. This <laughs> is you're in over your head, you know? And I'm glad, I'm really glad that happened. Cause I learned a tremendous about, about life and how to live and how to be because my whole twenties were very charmed. I'd say up so, until that point. So you took the job. This is just kind of like a fascinating little window. Uh, we're, we're of course going to move off at this point eventually, sure. but so you took the job and they were people who were kind of like out for your scalp immediately. I don't want to say that because these people are still people I know and, and they write, I think they were just, it, the magazine was in transition. Everyone was young. Uh, a bunch of the senior editors had all kind of coincidentally left around that time for other gigs. Um, one of them, my predecessor was Alex Wagner, who now has a cable show on MSNBC of her own. I think the staff was young and just kind of like, what are we doing? And I, I can understand why they were a little sketched out by me. I didn't respond well to like their twitchiness either. Um, I definitely should have stepped up and kind of been a boss and said, this is what we're doing and really believed in my ideas. I was very inconfident in my ideas because I didn't know these people and I didn't have a reason to feel confident. But I mean, I, I went back and found my notes from like my first day there and the artists that I was pitching them. And it was like Nicki Minaj and Beach House. I mean, these were bands that blew up like two, three years later. And the Fader's whole mission was to expose early or to expose artists early on, break artists. So... I know that like my instincts were good, like I know what good music is and I knew how to be excited about stuff, but I should have trusted myself a little more and been like, this is what we're doing. They needed a leader and I wanted to be on the team. I think that was probably the problem, really. Let's take a step back and talk about musical influences. Yeah. Like what were your parents listening to? What were your mu early musical influences? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, we all go through this life in a crazy way um, and I, I would love... I don't want to say, like, I'm looking forward to procreating an earth to see how my child discovers music. But, I mean, I would be really say interested. It. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to procreate to see how my child experiences music. It's interesting. We all have different pathways now. And with the Internet being available, it's just fascinating how people can get into stuff. But I think, you know, I was born in 1979. And, you know, you don't find music. Music just kind of finds you, I think. So what happened was my dad was into rock and roll and, like, a little bit of country stuff. Very little bit, like Bob Seger and you know, Willie Nelson and things like that. Yeah. That was kind of playing around my house when I was a kid. Like the first two records, or the first like three records I really, really remember as a child were um, the Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, Talking Heads, Remain in Light, and Bob Seger's Against the Wind. Like those are like the first like three albums that really, I'm, ta I'm talking like two, three years old, like you're a toddler walking up to the stereo, this kind of magical glowing thing. Against the wind We were running against the wind We were young and strong. We were running against Man, the wind. That is my karaoke go-to. Well, one of my many karaoke go-tos. And the years rolled slowly past And I found myself alone Where's your karaoke we'll, spot? We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come back to karaoke. Well, I'm about to start shouting out the karaoke spots in D.C. Big shout-out to Kinky Costume Karaoke. Walk and Roll Karaoke. M -m 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 Musette Karaoke. 
and can't forget karaoke night at Wonderland Ballroom. Rest in peace, Cafe Japone. And pour some sake out too. So that was like the first stuff I was into. And then, you know, I was growing up in the 80s. So Thriller is massive and Joshua Tree is massive and Hollow Notes is massive. And then around like nine or 10, my dad worked in a carpet store in Adelphi, Maryland. He was a carpet salesman. And the guys who worked on the floor crew were just like kids from the neighborhood, you know, 17, 18. Maybe they were early college age kids. And they were all listening to hip hop, R&B and go-go on the radio. And, you know, when you're nine, teenagers are like the coolest people around. I'm the, I was the oldest in my family, so I didn't have an older sibling to really like look up to and idolize or anything like that. So these guys were like super cool. And they were playing me, you know, Eric B and Rakim and Heavy D and Chuck Brown and Bobby Brown and all this kind of stuff, salt and pepper. Um, so I'd go on a Saturday with my dad to work and they'd make me learn who was which song. And then the next week they'd come back and they'd like go down the radio down and go, hey, who's this? And I'd be like, it's Heavy D and the boys. And they would just die laughing, thinking it was like the funniest thing ever that this white kid from the suburbs knew all about the rappers that they were into. I know you want lots of jewels and stuff, backyards with swimming pools, bars with stools and stuff, fancy foods, lobster, sushi, yeah, Versace, Gucci, crazy luchi. But anyway, so that was like, that was like 10, 11. But then by the time you get to high school, then, well, then Nirvana and Pearl Jam happened. And that just kind of like wiped all music out of my mind. I was so blown away by those two groups. What was it that blew you away about? Nirvana just, I mean, I was a part of that cultural thing where they just seemed like nothing else matters right now than this band. Like, this is a band cutting through everything. What else could I say? still loved like other stuff that was on the radio at the time CNC Music Factory and Rhythm Nation was really big for me and stuff actually I remember I had bought from this kid this kid I knew Alan Tracewell I haven't thought about him in many years Alan Tracewell got a CD player so he was selling all of his cassettes and I bought and I bought from him Nevermind and Criss Cross Totally Crossed Out mm -hmm. at the same time and I remember kind of holding them in my hand and being like I have to choose a path you know what I mean because I had like a starter jacket and my hair was long the starter jacket was a fashionable garment created by the starter clothing line featuring the logos of athletic teams ranging from college to professional sports it became a pillar of urban wear during the 1980s and 90s and presently is making a comeback with hipsters worldwide I was the first kid in seventh grade to have the pullover the second wave not the puffy zip but the pullover <laughs> with, the, with the pockets but then I was growing my hair out grunge at the same time you know so like I think as teenagers and maybe it's not this way anymore. I hope it's not. But it was very much like you need to choose what cultural side you're going to be on. And I chose rock and roll. That's very interesting that you say that because it, in my memory, that kind of Pearl Jam Nirvana moment also corresponded with Snoop Doggy style. Sure, of course. 1993. Yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I went the complete opposite way. And right. it took me years to kind of circle back and realize right. like, oh my God, this Nirvana band is absolutely incredible. Because at that point in my life, I was memorizing all the lyrics to Doggy style. Freeze. Had ease. Now let me drop some more of them keys. It's 199 Trace, so let me just play. It's Snoop Dogg, I'm on the mic, I'm back with Dr. Drake. But this time, I'm gonna hit your ass with a touch to leave motherfuckers in the days fucked up. 
So sit back, relax, new jacks get smacked It's Snoop Doggy Dogg, I'm at the top of the stack I don't black for a second, and I'm still checking The dopest motherfucker that you're hearing on the record is me, you see, S-N-O-O-P Now see, I had those records, I had The Chronic, I had, you know, 36 Chambers, I had all that stuff But it was like, it was just weird, you wouldn't like advertise that that's what you were into you know what I mean? You had to be punk. So after after Nirvana and Pearl Jam, then this girl moved to my neighborhood. Her name was Deanna Barton. And this was eighth eighth or ninth grade. I can't remember exactly. But she had come from Massachusetts, and she knew all about punk. She knew about Fugazi and Bikini Kill and Sonic Youth. And she arrived, like, as if sent from the future or some amazing place. And she was just the coolest. Like, I couldn't even have a crush on her because I was so, like, in awe of her as a person. got me into so much good music and started kind of taking me to punk shows in DC and then by that point like the self-identity thing really became like this is who I am I'm punk rock and you know I shaved my head so I could look like Ian MacKay and Minor Threat and stuff and, say, and that and you were in a good place to kind of become enamored of sure. punk because DC at that time I'm not sure if it's really well known around the world maybe but it, within the punk world DC is known as like a place that was really important with Minor Threat Bad Brains I mean yeah. that, that Bad Brains logo I just learned is the inspiration for the logo for U Street Music Hall yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like totally. the lightning yeah. bolt hitting sure. the Capitol. Sure, sure. Of course. I mean, the punk scene here was so massive in in the 90s. I mean, Fugazi was really like a national presence, and that was They're the band. great. I yeah. love Fugazi. Yeah, of course. I mean, that was, and so that really became like my religion in, in my teenage years. I am a patient boy. not only were they such a great band but like they stood for so many righteous things and it was about community and you'd see people at their shows I mean like positive force and going to benefit concerts I just kind of thought that's how concerts were you know what I mean like like oh yeah naturally like it's only gonna be five bucks and it's gonna go to benefit you know an HIV clinic you know what I mean? like it just yeah, kind of yeah. became a part of who I was without even really thinking about it um, and that really sort of taught me about music and activism and how powerfully they can sort of correlate but it was very so DC punk very much became my culture and identity throughout high school and into my 20s and yeah so what was your instrument what did I play I played guitar played guitar yeah I played guitar and sang in, in bands so when did you pick up the guitar I picked up the guitar probably around the Nirvana Pearl Jam time there were kids in my school who were like playing like Led Zeppelin and stuff and I was like that sounds too hard, but Nirvana was really empowering because you could learn those songs pretty easily. I mean, it's all power chords. Tabs? Were you looking at the like, Oh, the man, I was definitely looking at tabs the, for sure. What was this? There was like one, guitar magazines used to have yeah, all Guitar the World and Guitar Player. I had I had subscribed to Guitar World and I'd buy Guitar Player at Safeway sometimes. <laughs> How did you buy the guitar? Who bought you the guitar? How did that instrument find its way into your hands? My dad, he, my dad Big was... Big up, dad. No, sure. My dad was, well, my dad was a musician, like, oh, he sang in a cover band in the 70s, but then gave up music completely um, to have a family and support his family and stuff. And my family's like super working class 
background and stuff. I was like the first person in my extended family to go to college and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, he was very much like becoming career man, family man. So he gave up music, but he had a guitar around. So I started playing that one. And I think my parents said, if you take lessons on this and show that you're dedicated for X months, then we'll, and you save your money. You know what I mean? You can buy a guitar. And I was like getting real good at like the lawnmower hustle. Like I was like started the starter jacket I had to buy myself. So it was like, I got it, you know, 10 bucks a week in lawn mowing money. And I can like, you know, by winter time, I can have the second wave starter jacket. Um, so the guitar was the same thing. I think the guitar, I bought it from the guy who actually was giving me guitar lessons. I think what it was, it was a Fender Stratocaster. I still have it. Who was, oh yeah. Who was the guitar teacher? Oh, I don't even remember his name. His name was Tom. I don't know. I should go find him. I didn't stick with the lessons for very long. I'm very impatient. That was my problem. And as I took guitar lessons too, so I want to know what type of stuff did he have you play, if you can recall? We were just, I mean, it was very much, he would not teach, this guy did not teach songs. All my other friends were like learning how to play, like even flow and stairway to heaven and under the bridge and stuff like that. And my teacher was very much like, you're going to learn the chord shapes and the scales. And he, so he was a good teacher, but I was impatient. And then punk was so empowering because you didn't really have to know how to play to play punk rock. So I quickly ditched the lessons way too fast. So talk about getting in the band. Whose band was it? How did it start? How did you get involved? Um, I had a high school band that I started with, like my three friends. And that Where'd was practice? That. Huh? Where'd y'all practice? Uh, in the drummer's basement. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the drummer's older brother was this guy named Matt. And he was older than us, so he could drive us to our shows because we couldn't drive yet. We were all 15, 14. So then Matt would drive us around um, kind of like grumpily, and he would take us to shows <laughs> too. But it ended up Matt was really getting really into music too. So he kind of dropped his guard over time and started playing bass. And then eventually he ended up being the guy that helped st- or that I started a band with in college, which was called Q and Not You. Q and Not You is a punk band birthed here in Washington, D.C., comprised of our guest, Chris Richards, as well as John Davis, Matt Borlick, and Harris Klar. They released their first album, No Kill, No Beat Beep, in 2000, on the legendary local label Discord Records. You're listening to Madcap, and let's get to know the sound of Q and Not You right now. stuff the most touring and travel and put out the most records and all that good stuff so he but matt was only in the band for the first album because we kind of had the whole band had sort of inner strife and and we asked him to leave so So that's kind of jumping around sorry i want to know how i want to know how your family responded to your i guess your involvement in music like how do you really want to dive into it considering that my parents were you know the backgrounds that they had like they were 
so insanely supportive of all the stuff I wanted to do. I studied art at GW. I got like a half scholarship for painting. You know what I mean? So they're about to send their first, like the first kid in the family to go to college. They're about to send them off to art school, you know? And the thing is too, a half tuition scholarship at GW is great, but also that still costs a lot of money. According to George Washington University's own website, tuition for the 2014-15 school year is a whopping $48,000. Seven hundred and ninety dollars. Good thing they stopped short of that forty-nine thousand, David. <laughs> no room and board included, by the way. Prospective applicants, please alert your parents before sending this application in. <laughs> and then the other part too, which I mean, I wasn't dishonest with them about this, but part of the reason I wanted to be in DC is because I wanted to be around the music scene here, and I wanted to be a part of it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to UCLA or up to Boston or whatever, even to Micah in Baltimore, which I think was a kind of like something I was thinking about. Didn't want to do it. Wanted to be in D.C. near this music culture. And um, and they had my back the whole way. And I'm still so grateful to them. I think they never really saw me, like, slacking off. Like, I would, I've always really thrown myself pretty energetically into whatever is in front of me. So I think if I was ever, like, sliding, they would have stepped in and said, hey, what are you doing with yourself? But they've always had my back 100%. They come see anytime we played. Once the band got going, like, at first when we were, like, pretty underground around the town and, like, playing house shows and stuff, they weren't coming to those shows. But once we were, like, headlining Black Cat, and Fort Reno and stuff, they'd be at all those shows, and they're incredibly supportive, and I've been very, very blessed to have such good parents. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Well, I mean, t- take me through the foggy bottom years. <laughs> the foggy bottom years. Yeah. Um, it was cool to be here. I mean, I already had a sort of... So all through high school, I was coming to D.C. to come to shows, and so there was already a kind of a community of musicians and, like, the punk scene. I was already plugged into that. So when I got to campus, it wasn't like, time to meet new friends. I'm so scared. I already had a whole crew here of people. And then slowly you try to like mesh those with your GW people and then maybe two classes after me this whole group arrived which were that we called the freshmen for the rest of our lives actually I still call them the freshmen um, but these are people who are still uh, in town and involved or maybe not in town but making music like Mike Patillo who's in Protect You uh, my friend Sean McGinnis was part of that and he is the drummer for Piss Jeans um, and, and a whole other my, my best friend Josh who doesn't play music but is involved in uh traditional arts and folk music programming and stuff anyway so uh it was just it was just a cool vibe at gw and i think i mean the one thing i regret is that there was such an international crew of people i didn't really reach out to be like you know hey guy from dubai like what is this insane techno that you're listening to that you know it comes from the other side of the planet i should have done more of that but i mean other than that i mean i think it was pretty a pretty sweet mix of people there and everyone got along pretty well at the school. I mean, of course there was kind of like the snooty moneyed people that you hear about this GW stereotype of the kids driving their beamers and stuff to school. And that was there, but there's people, you didn't really have to mess with them, you know, but you, you, you had to paint a lot. Correct? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you were, you were a painter in college. Yeah. So talk about that. Oh, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I mean, I was a painting student. Um, I loved painting. It was really great. My, uh, one of my best friends in this life and my roommates, a guy named Ian Whitmore, and uh, he stuck with it. So he, when I was doing, we were both, you know, trucking along together in the painting program at GW. And then as soon as I graduated, the band started going on tour like crazy. And he lived in our group house. And so he and I had a painting studio down the street in Silver Spring. And he was working hard. And then he got a gallery show at this place called Fusebox, which was around the corner, now closed, but it was around the corner from the Whole Foods on P Street. Because that was a whole like art gallery corridor just like, you know, five years ago when it was first kind of getting made over. Um, and now he lives in New York and, you know, is a represented artist and still doing the damn thing, which is great. So it was just a cool vibe. Like we all kind of, I mean, this it was like a little arts culture scene. So we, you know, our house, was, some of our bandmates lived there and Ian lived there and it was, it was a cool vibe. 
one question about painting like who was your influence or what kind of painting were you really inspired by um the, the program at gw was super traditional so like um it was very like back to basics and like you know you will study the great masters which is great in town here because you can go sketch from like a rembrandt painting for free any day you want to because we live in washington dc which is glorious um then by the end of it of course like you want to rebel against that and do abstract stuff so i was really into you know gerhard richter and um there was a painter named laura owens who i really thought was awesome and still think is awesome um this guy, David Reed, I really enjoyed. So, like, kind of, like, more, like, colorful abstraction stuff. But I haven't picked up a paintbrush in many years. But I will again. Life is long. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, so during the touring that you did with your band, now, was there ever a moment where you thought in the back of your mind that you wanted to involve yourself in journalism? Were you keeping a diary? Were you keeping a journalist no, the entire no. so time? My whole career path is a gigantic accident. And mm -hmm. I hope you edit this down. <laughs> you can, if you edit everything else down, you can just have this part. But, like, right. um, I, did, I did a fanzine. I did a punk fanzine in high school. Right, Named. self public That was called Torpedo Dialogues. Okay, I did that in high school and the first couple years of college, and it was like an underground newsprint fanzine that had like national distribution through like DIY, but it got to like Tower Records and stuff. I think, um, but they'd be free in town. Like if I just go to like Smash or there's a record store called DCCD and just drop a pile of them. And I did that for a few years. I wrote a couple reviews for the music or for the um, the Hatchet, which is the newspaper at GW. And then after that, like a couple little fanzine articles here and there, and then the band just took over everything. So art got ditched, writing got ditched, all that stuff. Um, the way that I got in the door at the Post was it was my first job out of college because the band was touring a ton, but I still needed a way to make money when we weren't on tour. So, um, and there was a guy I knew named Bob Massey. He lived, he was a roommate of mine at this place called the Kansas House, which was like a punk house in Arlington, Virginia. And that's where I lived my senior year of college essentially a punk house in Arlington, virginia yeah yeah they, it was legendary man <laughs> yeah yeah no they had they did there's a whole city paper article about it being torn down like two or three years ago they i mean we had the rapture many of the rapture but we had the rapture play there dead meadow played there we did a lot of cool shows in the living room dismemberment plan i think played there once uh our band played there so bob massey was one of my roommates there he said oh if you need a job i think it was like i'm I graduated school, went on the tour, came back, needed a job. Bob Massey's like, I have a great job for you. You should apply for it. All these punk rockers work in the style section of the Washington Post, answering the phones and sorting the mail. And I thought, that sounds great. So I went in and did an interview, and um, the the hourly wage at the time was very competitive for, from a dude who has been paid minimum wage forever. Um, and it was cool. It was the Post. You know, you're around really smart people all day long. So I got the gig, and it was great. I learned that. Kathy Wilcox from Bikini Kill was one of these people who worked there. Allison Wolf from Bratmobile, Michael Cotterman, who was in Kid Dynamite at the time, I think, um, and a lot of other musicians. And we all took turns going on tour. It was a really sweet thing. So I was like, I'm going to be gone for October, but I'll be back November 1st, and then your band can go on tour November through December. And it was this really cool wow. kind of symbiotic vibe. Yeah, it was great. It's very assisting as, a, as an employer. It was so nice. The woman who put this together, her name is Mary Lisher. I came down from advertising and took this job at Style. And when I started, there were maybe 15 part-time copy aides working for me. There were four or five shifts a day and on the weekend, and it was very uh, difficult to schedule it all. And the punk musicians, the musicians really worked. I loved having them around. I needed people who were educated but knew, were more interested in the arts than in politics and national news. That's what made it work. And I'm still in touch with her, and she's not here anymore at the paper. But just, a, I mean, I, whenever I talk to her, I have to remind her, like, you've done a lovely thing. I posted the schedules three weeks, three to four weeks in advance. So they knew which shifts they'd be covering. 
if they had to be gone for shows, as long as they covered those shifts, I was fine with it. I didn't want to get involved with the substitution. And I asked if they were going on tour that they give me as much advance notice as possible. Um, sometimes that was only a few weeks. Sometimes it was a month or two. But we worked it out. We had a good group and we worked together. So as the band got more successful, I stayed, I kept the job. I mean, I, there were definitely, I mean, after like a couple years, like I was making a living off of the band and could have, but I was like, no, 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 I'm going to keep working at the post because I have this healthcare and dental and stuff. So, um, so it was very, it was almost like saintly of her to do this. I think the writers at the time kind of liked it too. Like all these kind of cool, like rock and roll and their duels in their midst, like delivering their faxes to them and stuff. I don't know. They probably did. So tour stories. Yeah. Rollins. <laughs> we were the most unraw band ever, man. We were like some really clean living, straight shooting, punk rock DIY. Didn't have to be fighting the power kind of guys. What did you see? What did you see on the road? Gosh, I don't know. This is hard. It's hard for me to recall anything super crazy. I mean, you know, you people spit on you at you know when you're performing. I don't know, like punk rock stuff. It doesn't have to be crazy. What was like the most fun? tour stop or trip you ever took the best day of my life we played coachella uh in 2004 damn that was like that was a day that i'll never forget it was really really amazing and we played we were in a a tent right before beck was playing so it was like the middle of the day so we had all the beck people there and this is just like straight up bragging right now is that cool um and it was the biggest crowd we'd ever played for and i think we're a little scared of course but also we just had this kind of like self righteous slash self-righteous punk energy just like we're gonna show these people what time it is you know and i just remember like throwing down i've talked to john my bandmate about this before and he's like i don't even remember if we were good and i was like i remember us being awesome and i don't ever want to hear a recording of it to prove me otherwise because i remember it feeling so great up there and then like you know we look the show's over and we look over and like all the chili peppers are like there watching the set and stuff it was cool it was a really special day in my life what was on your writer at that time yeah i think like carrots hummus and some waters okay. i mean that's how we were living i like to know you know yeah because <laughs> i mean because it varies yeah we kept it real minimal it's madcap with me dan bloom my co-host david ross and today washington post pop music critic chris richards who are some people that you've interviewed that have really blown your mind in terms of just conversation i'm just music in terms of just their knowledge and wisdom the people who are rare the people that you know you're probably never going to speak to again those are special because you and the people who don't speak often, those are special to me. So like I got to interview, you know, the three living members of Led Zeppelin last year for the Kennedy Center Honors. That's a band that really changed my life in like sixth grade. Oh, we forgot to put the tiny sixth grade classic rock window, but when we were going through the bio earlier. Okay, <laughs> okay. I mean, Zeppelin was just huge to me. So to be able to be able to have an audience with those guys individually, one at a time, and talk to them and kind of ask them about the creative and spiritual motivations behind what made them click that's cool hey lady got the love i need the lesson that i took from talking to all three of them is music is a collective endeavor and the magic of that group comes from the three of them or the four of them obviously getting in a when they were together four of them getting in a room and like everything that's flying around in that room it's not like the band is any one person. John Paul Jones said it to me. He's like, you know, what happens? He's like, Led Zeppelin is not the four of us. Led Zeppelin is what happens in the space between the four of us. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to think about music and creating music. And as a musician, I've absolutely felt that. Many times I've 
that's really the magic of collaboration in a lot of ways. And I think that's what makes all music great. Even, I mean, even like in hip hop, we live in a world where that's all solo artists, but there's so much collaboration happening between producers and rappers and, and that tension between the two is really what makes it, what and, makes it And go. ghostwriters. And ghostwriters. <laughs> I think hip hop will head back to a more collective format, but uh, who was another influential uh, person that you interviewed? Another, influ- oh, I was going to say, um, um, I got to uh, interview Sade. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. Extremely rare. Especially because that's a really rare interview to get. So. All right. Pronounce your name. Sade. All right. See, I say Sade too. And There's an R. It's no. R- somebody else was like, they, they looked at me uh, and they were like, Sade. And I was like. Oh, no. Like, that person is absolutely wrong. Brit. It was a Brit. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I swear it's Sade. I'm like, everybody's been saying this. But. Whatever. Yeah, I was gonna say the R situation is debatable. Yeah, but sometimes people no. pronounce it Sharde. I was born in uh, Nigeria, in somewhere called Ibadan, and uh, my my name is uh, my actual my true Nigerian name or the true Nigerian pronunciation, or as close as I can get to it, is Fola Shade, uh, which means crowning glory. And uh, it was abbreviated. I could have been actually called Fola, which is like a prefix, which is like quite a common prefix, in fact. Or I could have, or or I could have been called Chade, and I was called Chade, Chade, really. But in England, everybody goes Chade. In America, people tend to go Chade. Chade. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, do you do like all your own legwork on this? Do you call in favors? I mean, how how are you? How do you get the interviews? Yeah. Well, it's not like hi, I'm Chris please talk to me. It's the Washington Post that makes this happen. I mean, the fact that I work for a major American newspaper is what makes, makes it go around. With the Sade thing, I think I had written, I mean, it was for Soldier of Love, the tour. She, I think what I was told is she had done one press interview, one print interview for the album and one print interview for the tour. So the album was the New York Times and John Perellis got to go to England and like hang out at her house for four hours or whatever. And then I saw him uh, at an event and I was like, man, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> right? He didn't say that, but it, to a, it, that was the effect. Um, he's a very sweet guy in the times that I met him. Um, and then they were getting ready to launch the tour and they and I think that like the the handlers were kind of like, you know, does the Washington Post have a wire service? Like, do we supply wire copy to other newspapers? Because her tour was launching in the area. So if my story ran at the beginning of the tour, then other newspapers could pick it up and run it across the country. So I think that was probably, like, on their end, that was, like, their scheming to it. But I was just trying to get the story. She's obviously huge here in D.C. I mean, this is the city that invented The Quiet Storm. The Quiet Storm, created here in Washington, is one of the longest-running programs at WHUR, Howard University's radio station. Special shout-out to the Bison. It features smooth, prime cuts, contemporary ballads, and instrumentals for anyone that desires the finest of relaxing music. This is the program for you.
solidifies it. So it was a big story for us to get. And, you know, a person who only appears every 10 years and doesn't do a lot of press. So being able to have an audience and kind of talk to her. And then also the other thing that was really cool is that, you know, you read that she's kind of like a sphinx. But I felt like she was totally open book. But that's probably because I don't like to talk. I don't really bother with musicians talking about, like, you know, the scandalous details of their personal lives. I mean, that's just, like, stuff that's so well documented. And I don't think enough people talk to people about, like, where their creative energy comes from and what makes the magic of their music magic, you know. And I know that's kind of like pie in the sky, Pollyanna, yippee dippy heady stuff to try and get to but I'd much rather try to get there than waste time being like so your husband that you're kind of keep secret what's up with him and how's your kid you know that's just like I mean this is music let's talk about the magic of music let's talk about the the the, the magic that you create you know speaking of magic let's talk about the magic of the music in this town like what do you think is happening here presently because I feel like this is I mean talk about the shift that you see musically now from when you during the during the your favorite punk days. Then. Sure, totally. I mean, throughout, so, you know, there was a time, I guess maybe like in the late, the late audience, 2006, 7, 8, 9, people were like, what's going on in DC? It's so whack. There used to be all this great rock and roll and now it's like the scene's really dead and like the, all the go-go's kind of drying up and there's nothing. And I still talk to people who are still kind of in the punk rock world and maybe they live out of town and they say, what's going on in DC? It seems like totally dead. And I say, no, 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 no. There's so much going on right now. Um, and, and I think there is. I mean, there's so much dance music happening. There's so much hip-hop happening. Go-Go is not as robust and healthy as I would like, but it is surviving. It's not thriving, but it's surviving. Um, I think what the Bounce Beat bands have done with Go-Go in terms of making it their own is thrilling, and I hope that they can get more support so it continues to exist and doesn't just kind of fall off the face of the earth. But I think there's a really good energy. But the thing is, it's crazy, is this city has completely transformed since Obama got here. And this is how it works with any administration. I mean, the, the city population changes with whoever's in office. It's a tide that goes in and out. So I was gone when Obama was elected. I had been gone for about a year and I came back, I guess maybe six months into his first term and it was a different town, a different town. So much younger, so much more kind of connected stylish. I think the internet probably has something to do with this as well, but like it's just a radically different place than it was 10 years ago, I would say. I mean, if you think strictly in terms of venues, you know, there was no U Street Music Hall. There was no Tropicalia. There was no Rock and Roll Hotel. Absolutely. And these are places that you can go and see world-class acts now. Patty Boom Boom. I mean, there's tons of places. Bohemian was still there. Yep. And there was, you know, places that have been, that deserve credit for sticking it out mm-hmm. for all that time. But it's strictly in terms of where... You, and 930 Club, of course, deserves mm-hmm. credit there, too. But there's just so much more opportunity to go out and see great music now. And DC seems like it's become a much more important tour stop for for touring artists as well. I agree. I agree. I agree completely. It's gotten to the point where it's become so popular where other venues that normally didn't do any sort of live music uh, in the first place are doing it now. And they'll get like an artist that I'm just like, how do they get this on the person on the bill? Like, you know what I'm saying? I feel like it's just, there's that high of a demand, you know what I'm saying? So it's also sure. that increase of a compliment. I think that's also maybe another thing that we're gonna have to be mindful of too like when do we reach a saturation point when are there too many venues because it seems like they're just popping up one after the other Fillmore and you're starting (laughs) I mean you're starting to see with even like the closing of Red Palace on 8th Street that was like the first like domino falling or domino standing back up you know what I mean in the chain of 
of what's been happening in town. So I think, you know, when do we reach that sort of like critical saturation point where we can't have, we have too much, you know, too much competition. I was joking about the Fillmore, but I'm actually curious about what your take is. I mean, that's a Live Nation owned venue. They've been trying to edge their way into this market for a long time. Right. And I'm a Montgomery County resident and taxpayer, and I'm extremely unhappy with how that deal was pushed through by Isaiah Leggett. The operators of the Birchmere were supposed to be operating that venue, and they're not. And there's various reasons why, involving sweetheart deals. If so, people in Montgomery County are upset with how the Fillmore has panned out so far, I can understand why. Because there's just not a ton of programming there. That's really, no matter what you think of the programming, whether you think it's good or bad or effective or ineffective or serving a population or not serving another population, that's one thing. But just look at the calendar. There's not a lot of stuff happening there. You know what I mean? The 930 Club prides itself, and that's obviously their main competitor here. The 930 Club prides itself on being booked like almost every single night, sometimes twice a night with two different shows, not even like a double header bill, but like two different things, early show, late show, different artists. They really get it in. Um, I don't know. I'd be very curious. I need to kind of revisit what's going on with the film more professionally just to find out what, what the, how they're feeling about how they're doing. Um, because I do think when they started, there was an audience that they were trying to serve the way I read it at the beginning anyway, and they never told me this explicitly, but based on the programming, after the, like the first year, I was like, okay, this is going to be a venue that's going to cater to a quote-unquote suburban audience, meaning older boomer generation era kind of folks and teenagers, you know, and it was very kind of like warped tour or reunion tour kind of vibes at the Fillmore, um, and it wasn't going for that 20-something, 30-something, I go to concerts three nights a week crowd, like which I thought was smart. I was like, okay, cool. Then this ecosystem will continue to exist because they're obviously serving a different population than the 930 Club is trying to serve. Um, but now, I mean, I just look at the schedule and just think, man, where are the shows? You know what I mean? Like, there's just not a lot out there, and I don't make it out there as much as I wish I did. I mean, I think the room is cool. I think it's like a good sounding venue. I've, I've seen some great concerts there, but there's not a ton of stuff that's making me have to go there. I mean, I'm not biased against the place inherently. I mean, I am because of who owns it and what I think Live Nation's effect on the music industry is. But I will go there for the right act. I mean, I've seen Dead Mouse there. I've seen Afrojack there, Anthony Hamilton. They do mm-hmm. have the mm-hmm. kind of the, the heft to get big acts into there. Right. But what do you think is the effect of having a player like Live Nation now with their own venue in D.C.? Well, um, it's all... It's all competition. I mean, promoters are promoters are promoters in a way. I know that Live Nation, I mean, that's like saying that your mom and pop grocery store and Walmart are the same thing, and they're not, but they're all competing for our time and our dollars and our attention. Well, one cool thing that it did was it spurred 930 Club, U Street Music Hall, and The Black Cat to all get into this kind of independent presenters union sure, almost sure. to band together and start programming stuff in each other's venues, which sure. probably would never have happened otherwise. Sure. And that's interesting too. I mean, then, on, so on one side, that's like, well, good for them. Wait for them to like link arms and stand up to the man. And then the other hand, it's like, oh, well, that's a weird consolidation of power too, because now those three clubs are aligned in a weird way. And say, you know, I my band starts a fire at U Street Music Hall. Does that mean I don't get a gig at Black Cat and 930 Club anymore? So there's all kinds of things. I try not to get too into the promoter game here because it's very much about business and I'm not a business reporter. I'm a music reporter. I'm a music critic. I want what's best for our city musically. So I think everybody can deliver and everybody just needs to know what their who their audience is and make sure they're serving them. That's really like, at the end of the day, that's really all I care about. My last question on, on this topic is yeah. what do you think about Echo Stage? Echo Stage, same, same thing. I think they're still trying to figure out who their audience is. Um, and... In some ways, they have. I mean, they're going to do these gigantic EDM Tiesto things. I think it's really smart. I mean, 
I liked going to DC Armory. I think DC Armory is really a cool building to be in, but Echo Stage is smart to be like, let's put this in our under our roof and 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 do this here. So business wise, I think that's really savvy of them. Um, and they're also branching out too. I saw Teddy Afro and Mahmoud Ahmed there the other night, and the place was just uh, packed. You know, with I mean, almost entirely Ethiopian population, uh, entirely Ethiopian crowd there that night, of course, because these guys are two of Ethiopia. I mean, I would say they are the two biggest stars in Ethiopian pop music. Um, so that's great. I think they're doing stuff that people aren't doing. Did you see Juicy J there? I did not. I saw Juicy J at the Howard a month before. So. Tell me about that night. Uh, it was fantastic. He's an incredible live performer. Was he professional during that interview? Oh, it was. You'll have to read it, but he was fantastic. <laughs> he's, a, he's a really interesting cool guy and maybe one of those people too if you want to talk about interesting people it's like you think they're going to be one thing and they're completely another You're listening to Madcap, and our guest is musician and Washington Post pop music critic Chris Richards. Do you have a favorite venue to go and attend a show in DC? Uh, no, I won't. I won't pick a favorite. I mean, I'd have. There's something that I love about all of them, honestly. There's really not even one that I despise and hate going to, actually, which is great because that could be. In other towns, that could very much be the case. <laughs> and if there was, you wouldn't tell us either. Anyway, I probably wouldn't want to. I mean, because again, like again, it's not like I'm not the venue critic. I'm not the nightlife guy. If I was Fritan, who covers our nightlife stuff, then he can say that kind of stuff. But I think every all the clubs here. I don't say every single nightclub here, but the, the big players, they all play a role. They all have audiences to serve. And I think when they're smart about it, they're, they're great. They're, and it's a great place to live for that reason. Great city to live. It feels in a way like um, there is some sort of analog going on, and there has been since, I don't know, to, maybe since 2005, where it's like dance music in D.C. is doing kind of the same thing that punk music in D.C. was once doing. And oddly enough, it's a couple of like old punkers really at the center of it. Like... Will Eastman, Titsworth, Jesse Titsworth, mm -hmm. Dave Nada, mm -hmm. who I know was a rocker, mm -hmm. and then the next generation of that was like the Nouveau Riche guys, uh, Starks and Nacy, mm -hmm. and now you've got Future Times mm -hmm. records, mm -hmm. um, and including Protect You, you know, you yep. mentioned earlier, and the Beautiful Swimmers, who we know. I mean, that is just, it feels like there's a very fertile place right now, and dance music, to me, is like where that is. I think so. I think some of the most dynamic music being made here is dance music. Part of that is there's a fantastic venue for it. If we're going to talk about U Street Music Hall being a great place, there's a home for it, which is really cool. I don't want to start sounding like, things were better back in my day at all, but the thing that happened with the punk scene here is that people connected with each other and beyond just connecting with each other, there was a community activism to it as well. There were protest concerts. There were benefit concerts. And it was the idea that not only are we this tight insular community that's all going to band together, but we're also going to band together and do something good for the greater city around us. With the dance music world, I don't know if that's natural or, you know what I mean, like if we're going to be going to like, you know, HIV clinic benefit dance parties or whatever. Um, but I mean, heck, why not? Who knows? You know, maybe not. Yeah, maybe we will be. But like the thing, so I, I just wonder too if it's happening on the ground level because I'm 34 years old now and I'm not 17 and I'm not going to these things like it's, you know, 
the, the best night of my life. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because sometimes it does feel like the best night of my life. But when you're 17, 16 years old going to see music, it really is like the ultimate thing. So I do hope that like the young people who are meeting at these things are kind of forging those connections as well. And then we'll see what happens. But I mean, I'm just glad that there's a home for it and there's an audience for it and people are enjoying it and there's a dialogue between the artists, between the artists and the audience, between the artists and the venues. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. And this kid, Alex Young, who's uh, at... Walter Johnson High School, mm-hmm. 16 years old. Now he's touring all over the place. Right. It makes me happy to know that there's like this young generation of kids from around here who are really making a move. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Who's a music journalist that you read? You're like, this guy gets it. On one hand, I don't read a lot of music journalism because I don't want to get too group-mindy about everything. But of course I read a lot of stuff. I mean, that's that sounds as general as, I don't read anything. But I try not to read too much, especially too if you follow music journalists on Twitter, you realize they all are in touch with each other. And I find that like a little bit grody because it's like, are you guys serving your readership or are you serving each other a little bit? That might be a little bit of a New York complex that I developed when I lived up there. But hey, um, who do I think really gets it? You know who I really love is Ben Ratliff at the New York Times. He wrote a great review of Black Sabbath's new album. And it, just to read it, it's such a joy because it's like he, it's very much like, take my hand while I try and figure this out. You know what I mean? Like he's very much like probing different elements of the music and, and what it could mean and when it's working and when it's not. And I just felt like I was kind of following him through the hedge maze. And then we get to a dead end and turn around. And just to kind of have that sort of like that guidance, that's such a great thing to get from criticism where it's not about posturing. It's not about you know, making a declaration or, you know, showing everybody how big and bad your opinion is. It's very much about let's go explore this together. And that's a vibe that I get from him that I really, really, really quite like. Um, and then there's people, so there's people like him. That's like one type, like the curious person, the adventurer, whatever you want to call it. And then the other people are kind of like the, Hey, check this out kind of people. And someone would be like Philip Sherburn, the guy who writes about dance music for spin and a bunch of different places. Um, he's a dude who's, who I've always, thought has done a great job of like hey check this out hey check this out um i love jeff uh weiss out in los angeles i think he's of the hey check this out variety but also a guy who can really kind of like unpack ideas as well jessica hopper someone in chicago who's writing i've always enjoyed and i wrote for her fanzine back when i was a teenager i mean there's a lot of people i guess (laughs) considering i don't read anybody you know there's a ton (laughs) but you know what i'm saying like i mean I, i try not to get too insane with it i have a colleague of mine she does not read criticism in her field at all like on principle because she doesn't want to think those thoughts. You know what I mean? She, does, she doesn't, she wants, and I think that's a really interesting way to be, and I kind of ask her about this all the time. Now, if I were a, uh, a pretty lady in pearls, what would Chris Richards play to woo the ladies? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. You ask me what my pickup line is right now? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm in music. Wait, in music? Yeah, what do you play? What, what, what do you play to woo the ladies? Well, you got to know what a woman wants to hear a little bit. I mean, different people want to hear different things. Well, if I was a, if I was an attractive woman in pearls, what would you play? <laughs> the, per- <laughs> the pearls, the pearls. That's, you don't put your taste on us. The pearls, the pearls really make it interesting. I mean, like, I mean, are you, are you, are you kind of like a Jackie Kennedy vibe going on here? Or like, yes, what's your- yes, yes, yes. I live, I, I live at uh, 29th. You and live M. at the Watergate. I live at 29th and M. Just, just. Girl, I saw you walking out the Watergate, yeah. going to the Exxon to get some. Exactly. Hot fries. What's up? Exactly. You saw me walking across from the Four Seasons. This is this is a ridiculous question. <laughs> I think you got. I. I mean, can I answer this with any kind of dignity whatsoever? I don't. I don't Try. think. I, I don't think I can. First of all, then I'm trying to get like anecdotal, and I'm like, that's too personal. You can't be talking about this. Um, I will say 
the best date and the worst date that I've had this year, both at some time were on the same dance floor. Different nights, of course. So dancing can be amazing. It can be a way that you really can connect with someone in a deep and intense way. And dancing can also be a way where you feel so a deeply alienated from the person that you are dancing with that you feel like, am I even a human being? Which is actually really kind of a cool metaphor for dance <laughs> culture in and of itself because it is about togetherness and isolation. You know what I mean? It really is. Was there music in the background when you lost your virginity? Man, you're really personal. No, there <laughs> okay. was not. Okay, okay. There was not. When you go to a show mm -hmm. to cover it, now, do you, is there still a part of you that wishes that you were the one on stage? <laughs> um, well, I have a band now, so I get to play shows, so that's fine. Plug it. No, that's okay. Y'all <laughs> <laughs> right. can, can Google me and find out about that. <laughs> and and um, loop in the music. No, um, no, I have a band. It's called Paint Branch. It's like a band with John Davis, who I was in Q&U with for many, many years. You playing Paint Branch Homecoming? <laughs> I wish. Well, the funny part the funny part is on Twitter, like if I search Paint Branch on Twitter, it's everybody talking trash about Paint Branch students. So I like to retweet those sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> That's funny. Well, Paint Branch is also a body of water, isn't it? That's what we're named after. I like the, that. The stream, the, yes, the yes. stream that trickles off the Anacostia near our practice base. So we went with a geographic shout out for the band name. When I get caught up in the tangle of this tic tac town, and good luck chains around my neck and they won't let me down. This is Good Luck Chains by Paint Branch a duo comprised of former Q and Not You bandmates Chris Richards and John Davis. I'll be a prisoner, but only in my good luck chains. Do I miss it? I'll tell you a story about when I really missed it in a profound way. I went to um, do a story in New York City about Questlove of the Roots because the Fallon show was really gaining momentum and they were coming to do like a two-night stand at the 930 Club and I thought, let's go up there and see what a day in the life is for these guys who are now the hottest new band in late night. First of all, read his book. Phenomenal book. The new book he has out now, just great. Momento Blues, highly recommended. You mentioned something on Twitter, like some, some part that he, he discusses that they're really, they're really got There's a beautiful you. passage where he's talking about Dilla. Okay, Dilla. Dilla. This is Bendix, the Tomorrow People. What is the magic that makes one's eyes sparkle and gleam, light up the skies? The name of the game is Lightworks. Not really describing the person, but the, describing the music. I was like, wow, that's such an eloquent read of what this guy's music feels like and means. Which, of course, Questlove should be the man to do that. He sat front seat to it. You know what I mean? He saw it getting made. He saw the building blocks snapping together. And shout out to the Dilla tributes over at the Howard Theater. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yep. So, um, beautiful book. Check it out.
Quest, about the day that I spent with him, was incredibly so down to earth, mellow. In 30 Rock, they have this little tiny office area, and the band is all in one room, and then he has like a secluded like drum room to keep the bleeds because they'll record stuff there. And they were getting, they were working on Undone at the time. So he was saying, this is great. Because like, musically, it seemed like they had been totally rejuvenated because they practice for like five hours every day. They get the walk-on music tight, but they just jam and they just play. And the band plays every single day. To me, it just seemed like heaven. I was like, wow. To show up and like get to practice and just jam around and like f- improvise and feel out music with your friends and then go play on television and then go home. Like, that sounds like really a beautiful life. The guests on that show are even remarkably changed from their you know what I'm saying from their arrival on, on, onto the program because a lot of times they can't like as soon as they announce the guest on the Jimmy Fallon they can't get past the roots of what they're playing so many people are dancing and they're like they're like whoa, 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 whoa but the roots are here let me acknowledge this first you know what I'm saying then I'll deal with you Jimmy yeah no, it's, <laughs> it's cool I think they're also trying to figure out what song it is too if they don't know like oh am I getting clowned right now am I getting like big up like you know that the song means something it was chosen for a reason one of the guests that night was a guy from Apple some like gadget guy who was going to come on and talk about apps or whatever you know <laughs> gizmos and they were doing computer love by zap so they're practicing it and they're working it out and then they just kind of start veering off because they got it like it's in the pocket and like you'd be like okay cool and he had like a little microphone so we could like tell them like, all right cool sounds good guys so then they just kept playing, you know, and then, you know, the guitar line switches, and then the bass line switches, and then the drum beat switches, and pretty soon you get to the point where now they're playing their own song, and it's it's different from what it was, and, and they're in their own groove, and then it starts building a little more, just building a little more, and then and he's getting, like, more hyped because it's that thing, it's that weird, like, oh, it's coming into focus. I can see the picture, the Polaroid starting to emerge you know what I mean like the emulsion is starting to clarify a little bit and everyone's just doing that thing where everyone's like Ooh, oh man we are like we're in it now like, and, you know and they were having that collective psychic moment because no one's talking no one's saying like oh no switch to D minor or you know oh play the guitars a little more spiky you know there was no discussion it was pure jamming and psychic energy and sharing and pretty soon they're like writing their own little part and everyone is gassed up and feeling great and that is when I missed it so bad. It's not like you're on stage and playing the moment of creation, that moment where like you are playing music with other people, no one is speaking, it is completely intuitive and natural and beautiful and some magical thing is coming into shape in your midst and it's beyond everyone's control. It couldn't have happened if one person wasn't there. Every single person in the room has to be there to make that happen. That is what music is to me. Yeah, we obviously need to tone it down a bit. Run around town, spending time like it's counterfeit. Everybody catching hay fever like sinuses. Step in my arena, let me show y'all who the highness is. You might Any concert you go to is fascinating because you're never gonna be with all these people again. Ever. You know? Well, Chris Richards, thank you. We're gonna shake hands on We're gonna do it. Should we let the readers know? Or high five so they can hear the <laughs> Audible high five. I like it. That was our interview with Chris Richards, musician, painter, and pop music critic for the Washington Post. You can find his column every Tuesday in the style section of the Post, and also check the style section for his numerous concert and album reviews. You can find Chris Richards on Twitter at Chris underscore underscore Richards. That second underscore is for emphasis. 
Special thanks to Richards for being so patient with us and tolerating us. Special thanks to the Washington Post for allowing us two degenerates in the building. And a special thanks with the cherry on top to Mary Lisher for assisting with research and giving musicians a place to work. Peace. Madcap is produced by Dan Bloom, David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. Our intern is Marquise Goodwin. MadcapDC.org, on Facebook and Twitter, at MadcapDC.